First Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, so like a runner out of the gate, here's where we begin. There are certain types of gospel telling. There's teaching and there's preaching. Preaching is proclaiming. There will be proclaiming of God's word this morning, but then there's teaching. Teaching is explaining. There's going to be a lot of explaining and teaching this morning. We're looking at specifically verses 8 to 11 in chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. I begin with a proverb, Proverbs 22, verse 28. Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Do not remove the property lines, the boundaries that were set. This was physical. Of course, as the proverb was written, it was physical. Do not remove these landmarks. They were there designated for a reason. It's also spiritual. There are spiritual property lines or spiritual boundaries. We could say they're doctrinal. And that's what Paul is writing to Timothy about. Doctrinal issues, landmarks, property lines. And he's calling out false teachers who are moving those landmarks or property lines. Don't miss this. There's an enemy and he wants to move the property lines. He wants to blur those lines, those boundaries. He wants to skew the law. He wants to abuse the law. He wants to remove the law. And he's doing it, not only in the world, he's doing it in the church. He's moving doctrinal property lines in the church and he's moving moral property lines in the world. But landmark, this landmark, we believe in the landmark of God's word, in the authority of scripture. So scripture, not culture, defines the property lines of what is doctrinal, what is moral, and what is spiritual. And there's no wiggle room there. The word of God is the authority on all of these matters. Psalm 119 verse 89 says it like this, forever, that's eternal. O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your word is fixed. Your word is established. Your property lines are specific. And from heaven to earth, the church is God's representation. The church is to use God's word like a plumb line. Do you know what a plumb line is? It's a measuring device on a string or a rope. It's a weighted metal. And gravity helps measure what is perfect balance, vertically speaking. If you don't know what a plumb line is, you probably know what a spirit level is. 
Well, you know it as a bubble level. Did you know it's called a spirit level? I was like, oh my goodness, this is a perfect illustration. A spirit level? Yeah, the word of God helps us balance out that which is vertical, heaven to earth, and that which is horizontal, human relations. It's from the word of God and it's fixed. And those property lines are established and we live and thrive when we stay in those boundaries. Does that make sense? See, as a Christian minister, I am a mailman, not a salesman. And now after I've said it and I've heard it out loud, that has two meanings. That has two meanings. Wow. I am a male and that's what makes me a man. Wrong talking point. I'm a mailman. I deliver the message. I don't alter the message. I don't change the message. I don't modify. I am as the word coming from heaven, signed by the Lord, sealed by the Lord, sent by the Lord. Too many churches and Christians are salesmen, modifying the message, altering it, trying to make it more attractive, taking away that which might sting, that which might be offensive, that which might be pointed, and trying to put a package on it so that the world would receive it. And of course, they're getting another gospel when they are told something, but not told the entire narrative. See, with the good news must come the bad news. Paul says to Timothy, the time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, fanciful stories, legends, myths, TED Talks, motivational speeches, the opposite of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine or teaching always produces sound living. Conduct becoming like Christ. Now let me kind of tune back in to the frequency of last Sunday's message beginning at verse five. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith. Now this is speaking of biblical teaching is of course love and truth perfectly blended where there's a tension. And what the word of God produces in the Christian is a pure heart. You're washed by the blood, you are purified. Jesus would say, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The heart that is pure sees God. There's this good conscience. It's a vibrant conscience. Remember, when we do something wrong, we want to feel guilty in our conscience. It accuses us. But that accusing should draw us closer to God's grace. There's no condemnation. So with a conscience that has the word of God in it, I know the difference between right and wrong. And when I do wrong, my conscience convicts me. That's why having a vibrant, sensitive conscience tethered to the word of God is extremely important. And then it ends with a sincere faith. And I said in the second service last week, the word sincerity is the word sincera. In Latin, it means without wax. Without wax, yes. When there were pottery salesmen, that would have broken pottery that they did not want to 
throw away, they would seal the broken pottery or the fractured condition of it with wax. And the wax would blend in with the clay and they would sell it. And you go home and you put that piece of pottery on your porch and then the sun comes out and it's a hot day like yesterday. And you realize, why is my clay pot melting? And it's the wax. And when the wax melts, guess what you are exposed to? The crack. And they sold you a bag of goods, right? And God's like, that's like the person who comes in, acts like they got it all together, all buttoned up. But on the inside, they're not only hurting, they're broken, they're in sin. Jesus called that hypocrisy. We wear masks. Having a sincere faith is being authentic and transparent. And that does not mean being perfect. It means I allow the word of God to do what only the word of God can do. So I come with full transparency and I expose my life to the one who sees me naked. That's Hebrews. And he does the work within me. And of course, I join a community made of people who have flaws just like me. And that is what makes this community unique. It's the only community in all of the world that actually leads with its flaws and its brokenness and honest about our shortcomings. <laughs> Think about it. If you did that in any other organization, I want to let you know that what you're getting yourself into when I enter this community is I'm coming with a lot of baggage. The church is like, yeah, bring it on. Our God can handle it. Paul is writing to Timothy to protect the gates of the church from false teaching. In verse eight, he's gonna clarify the law and how it was being misused. I wanna read it in its entirety, then we'll take it piece by piece, verses eight to 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. All right, there's a lot there. But these verses right here tell us what it was that Paul wanted Timothy to know about the law. Now, mind you, remember, there were false teachers who were using the law in ways that were contrary to the purpose of the law. That's where we got the false doctrine of legalism. They were holding people to the law and saying they had to keep it in such a way that they were saved by their works. That's legalism. Then there was a group of false teachers that were taking the law, maybe talking about the genealogies and the myths and adding allegory to the teaching. And they were, they were flirting with liberalism. They were abusing the grace that God was given. And they were using their freedom in Christ to live lifestyles of sin. And licentiousness is the word. So Paul's like, Tim, you got to call that out. You got to bring people from liberalism and legalism to literalism. The literal meaning of the law. And this is how he begins, verse eight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it 
lawfully. Interesting sentence. The law is good if used lawfully or legitimately. All right, what is this all about? First and foremost, it's a contrast. The contrast is between the ignorant use of the law versus the intelligent use of the law. The contrast is between malpractice of the law versus proper practice of the law. He uses a word in Greek, good, that is speaking more to not just the benefit that something brings. Oh, that was good. He speaks to an intrinsic quality of excellence, not only outwardly, but inwardly. Now, mind you, he's talking about the law. The law, he says, is beautiful. That's the, the Greek word good. Beautiful inside and out. Now, this might go against everything you might have known about the law. The law is good? Yes. It's perfect. Now, when we talk about the law, we're going to apply the spirit of the law with the letter of the law. Those two cannot be disconnected. And I'll make my case from the word of God shortly. Here's the outline for the message. We're going to look how the law is used in three primary ways. The law is used lawfully when it's punitive. The law is used lawfully when it's restrictive. And the law is used lawfully when it is instructive. This is the three primary purposes of the law. Note this. Punitive, restrictive, instructive. All right. First purpose of the law is punitive. False teachers were taking the law and were abusing it in such a way that they were presenting it as a means of righteousness. They were mixing it with genealogies and myths. We learned that last Sunday, according to verse four. And this was causing believers to misunderstand the purpose of the law, caused them to abandon the grace of God. And this is why Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm charging you to bring a charge against them. Tim, I am charging you like a military command to bring a charge, legally speaking, to those that are misusing the law. Tim, I'm asking you to guard the gates of the church and bring indictments to those who are misusing the law. Speaking of indictments, I'll save that for Thursday. See, why is the law punitive first? God does not apologize for dropping a plumb line of morality upon planet Earth. God does not say, I'm sorry for the standard of righteousness that he established. Without a standard or a law, we would not know that we are part and parcel to the fall. Did you know that? The fall of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, without the law being held up like a mirror, what does the mirror do? The mirror does not clean your face. The mirror just reflects and exposes that there's dirt on your face. So when we look into the mirror of God's word, it reveals the reflection, the honest reflection that I'm a sinner and I've fallen short. But when I keep looking in that mirror, there's another image that rises to the surface. And it's the image of Jesus. And how Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish the law, 
and he would meet every requirement of that law, and then he would die setting a standard that we cannot keep. For all have fallen short of the what? Glorious standard of God. And the punitive consequences of the law tell us. Let's go through a few verses that speak to the law. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The word perfect means complete, means sound. It means blameless. The law of the Lord is perfect. Romans 7.12, the law is holy. That means set apart, different from the world. That means having the likeness in nature with the Lord. The law is holy. The law and the commandments are holy, just and good, just or righteous. They're right and they're good. Same word from 1 Timothy 1.8. We know the law is good. Why? Here's what the law in a punitive way accomplishes. It shows us that we are sinners. I pause, I dramatically pause because this is what's missing in the church. The church is not a self-help community. The church is not here to boost somebody's self-esteem. The church is here as a community of sinners saved by grace, adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. The church is the household of the living God who have the Holy Spirit living within them. Here, the law is perfect, holy, just, and it's good. And it tells me I'm not. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Let's go a little bit deeper into this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Did you catch that? Did you ever read that verse? The entire world is guilty before God because of the law. There will be no one on that day of judgment that has an excuse. They won't be able to say anything before a holy God and a judge with the perfect law as the mirror when they are held to that standard. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Are you getting this? What does that tell me? It tells me I'm lost. The punitive purpose of the law, I am lost, I'm a sinner. The law does not leave me hanging though. In fact, the law, according to Galatians 3.24, ready? Therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, our disciplinarian. That which, ready, brings us to Christ. So why? The New Testament church should always use the law, which is more or less Old Testament, is because it leads us to Christ. It brings us into right relationship. It tells me I'm a sinner and then I'm able to choose Jesus who is my sole savior. The law forces people to recognize they are guilty of disobeying God's commandments and thereby condemned to hell. Condemned to hell. Not what the world wants to hear. Sadly, not what the church in America wants to hear. Condemned to hell. See, the punitive purpose of the law is not to convince you of your uprightness. The punitive purpose of the law is to convict you of your sinfulness. Just like that. That's how this plays out. Now, remember, I'm talking about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Jesus helped us apply the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. 
in Matthew chapter five, all the way to Matthew chapter seven, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with the Beatitudes. It rolls over to what is called the Similitudes. And then by and large, most of the remaining part of that sermon are attitudes. Beatitudes, similitudes, attitudes. And he says to a group of religious folk who would have claimed to have kept the law. He says, the law says you shall not commit adultery. Never done that. He says, but I say, if you looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed it. You see what he did there? He says, the letter of the law says, do not commit adultery. I got that one. (laughs) But if you looked upon someone with lust in your heart, you've broken the spirit of the law. Law says you shall not murder. That's the letter of the law. Don't take someone's physical life. He goes, but when you have anger in your heart and it's aimed at somebody else, it's as if you murdered them. He's showing humanity He's leveling the playing field. He's saying all are guilty as charged under the punitive purpose of the law. How do we know this? Paul writes to Timothy in that same trajectory. Watch this. What law is he talking about? Knowing this, verse 9, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, And for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing all-encompassing that is contrary to sound doctrine, what's up with this list? There are various lists in the New Testament that describe sinful behaviors of man. But this list is altogether different. This list, upon first read or gloss over, seems like they're just random descriptors or adjectives, random definitions of lawlessness or sinners, but it's way more than that. See, you'll be illuminated to know that what Paul wrote in this way was highly intentional. In fact, when he wrote these descriptions, he was actually putting in front of Timothy and the church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments, line by line. Watch this comparison. Here's the picture for you on the screen showing you a line by line breakdown of how it is in alignment with the Ten Commandments. The first for the lawless. The law is for the lawless and insubordinate. The lawless and insubordinate are those who deny God. These people are not necessarily anarchists, lawless. They're more or less saying, I'm independent of God. I don't even think there is a God. I don't need him and I'm gonna live however I want. They are lawless in the sense that they believe in moral relativity or their own definition of truth, right? So they're just carrying on living their life in complete insubordination that there's a real God and they are accountable to him. That's the first category. Or in the law of Moses, you shall have no other God before me. Just like that, right? That's universal. Did you know that? 
That law right there is universal to planet Earth. You shall have no gods before the one true God. He then moves intentionally to what he says is ungodly and sinners. Who are they? These aren't those that deny God. These are those that defy God. These are those who know God is real and yet they live in such a way that they are opposing him at every turn, every step, which is commandment number two. You shall have no idols, no graven images. That's knowing that, okay, there's a real God, but I'm going to worship him this way, or I'm gonna do life this way. I'm going to hold my fist to the heavens and I'm gonna defy him at every turn. That's that category of people. That is idolatry. That is putting things before God that is worshiping those things, that's material worship, that is relational worship, that is complete defiance to God. So now we go from those that deny God to the second commandment, those that defy God to the third commandment, which is for unholy and profane people. This is the category of people that defraud God, which is in tandem with commandment number three. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. A lot of people think that's speaking of verbal taking of the Lord's name. Now, certainly, every time I hear somebody use Jesus Christ as a curse word, my soul cringes. Certainly, you've used God's name in a vain way. But this is more than that. This is anyone that calls themselves a Christian, they wear the name, but they are completely defraudulent in nature. They are living a complete opposite life. And the, the, the home jersey especially in America, majority of people would say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then live completely contrary in a profane and unholy manner. They're taking that which is sacred, the name of God, and they're applying it to some perverse things. That's, that's the third commandment. The fourth commandment can be skipped. He doesn't mention the Sabbath. He adds commentary later to another letter saying the Sabbaths and the festivals and the feasts all those were shadows, right? Christ fulfilled all that. You don't have to worry about Sabbath anymore. Now, if you want to have a Sabbath, then go for it. But that is not a biblical New Testament command on anyone. You won't find it in the New Testament scripture. The law of Moses carries over. He then goes into an area of murdering fathers and mothers. The word murder here, of course, physically killing your parents. Young ones in here, look at me. That's wrong. But he's speaking to smiting your mom and dad, dishonoring them, being disobedient to them, not respecting them, which is coupled with the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And now he goes after murderers, manslayers. That's the word murder, which is do not murder. And then he moves into fornication and sodomy. Now, look at me. Fornication in the Greek is the word, you ready? Porneia. That's the word pornography. Fornication is any sexual immoral act, whether in thought or in hand. Fornication, sex outside of marriage, watching pornography, lusting after. All of us are fornicators. If we're being honest, We've all broken that. Sodomy is about homosexuality. It goes back to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
He's calling out any sexual immoral act, whether heterosexual or homosexual. That's what he's saying, which is do not commit adultery. Every time adultery is mentioned in the Bible, especially when it comes out of Jesus's mouth, he is saying it all encompassing of every sexual sin. It's porneia, it's pornography. He then moves, of course, as you see, to kidnappers, which is thou shalt not steal, do not steal. Kidnapping, taking that which is not yours, especially children. At the time, they were stealing each other's servants. He moves to liars and perjurers. Lying is outright deceiving. Perjury is taking an oath and doing the opposite. That is tandem with do not bear false witness. And then in case he missed anything, he says anything contrary to sound doctrine, which you can throw in there, coveting, right? Like it's, when you see what Paul is doing here with Timothy, he's telling him there's a purpose to the law and you're not to forsake the Old Testament. You're actually to apply it in a New Testament way because it's building upon the structure that tells humanity they are sinners and they can't save themselves. Now this helps you understand why there are forces at work to remove the law of God from the public square. This is gonna help you understand, wait, what's happening? Why is there such a concentrated evil demonic effort to remove the law of God from the public square? And why is there a concentrated effort to get the church and the Christians not to bring up the law of God? Let's, let's just talk about the gospel. <laughs> well, you can't get to the gospel, which is the exoneration without the incrimination. You are first incriminated by the law and your guilty is charged. And then Jesus says, and I become your advocate and I save you from what you can't save yourself from. And Christians that truly know the depth of the gospel will certainly hold the property lines of what is doctrinal. And when I see Paul say to Timothy, hey, keep an eye on how they're using the law. There needs to be an effort at holding the law of God up to a world that is in rebellion. The ACLU, that is the American Civil Liberties Union, sounds good on its face. For the past several decades, they have been subtly or overtly removing the law of God from the public square, including removing the Ten Commandments from courtrooms. Just think about that. They don't want what you just saw on the screen in a courtroom where people are violating the law. We don't want to see that. It's really the God part. As of late, the ACLU, their focus is making sure that our children are sexually liberated. They've joined in on multiple lawsuits state by state, which is attempting to take away parents' rights, right? They're, they're removing the law of God so that there can be complete chaos all in the name of human rights. They want our children to engage in sexual explicit material earlier and earlier. They're even advocating for policies that would allow minors to surgically alter their gender without parental consent. American Civil Liberties Union, the great defenders of our liberties. What's the result? What's the result of not taking this list and applying it to the church and the world? Here it is. When you remove God from government, you get godless government. 
When you remove God from education, you get godless education. When you remove God from society, you get godless society. And while we have been allowing the world to remove God, the enemy has been moving in. See, we cannot remove the law of God from all around and not expect lawlessness to abound. There's the result. Why? Laws equal authority. Authority equals jurisdiction. Let me say that one more time. Laws equal authority. A law is applied and backed by authority. Authority comes with jurisdiction. Local city police officers, they have a jurisdiction where they can apply the law. And they're not allowed, I mean, there's cases where they can, when they cross boundaries or lines, they can no longer apply their law. They have to call in to the neighboring jurisdiction. Does this make sense? Now are you understanding why? If the enemy can remove the law of God, he can remove the authority of God. And if he can remove the authority of God, he can claim jurisdiction over those spaces. And that's not just a problem with the world. It's also happening in the church. If he can get us to misunderstand the word of God, there's no more authority. There's no standard. He then, of course, has jurisdiction over the church, the false church, which leads me to the second purpose of the law. It's punitive, but it's also restrictive. The restrictive purpose of the law is to restrain evil and sustain good. Traffic lights out there right now are a perfect example of what it means to restrain evil and sustain good. Now, of course, green means go, red means stop. That alone brings order to a community. Traffic laws and signs, period, right? So that's, if I see a speed limit, it restrains me from exceeding it. Does that make sense? When I see a police officer who represents the law on the side of the road, I pump my brake, okay? That's the purpose of the law. When you walk into a store and you see a sign that says, shoplifting will be persecuted to the highest extent of the, it deters anyone from having sticky fingers. Unless we live in a society that is no longer applying the law properly and prosecutors who are unwilling to prosecute because you know what? As long as you don't steal over $1,000 worth of goods, you know what? We'll let them have at it. And that is why at that level you are seeing chaos. How about this? I was on the boardwalk yesterday with my family, my wife, Sarah, my two sinners of children, <laughs> Ezekiel and Willow. We get up on the Wildwoods boardwalk and there's an announcement over the entire megaphone system. And it said this, and I'm like pondering my sermon for today. And here it is. The Wildwood Police Department wants you to know that the Wildwoods boardwalks are presently monitored by video surveillance. And I'm like, why they got to tell us that? Because they're applying the restrictive purpose of the law. In a day and age where people are breaking the law, they are there to remind you, hey, if you try to try anything up here, we're watching you on video. Like the restrictive purpose of the law keeps order in society. It should. See, the law represents God's righteous demands on human behavior. In fact, even societies that don't have the law of Moses 
Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, get this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. That is why human laws matter. That is why the Ten Commandments are universal. Did you know that? It's not just an American thing. We talk about the Judeo-Christian framework, but God's like, my law applies to, to planet Earth. Jurisdiction, mine. And the church needs to hold up the standard of God and let people know that they are sinners on their way to hell. And yet we are the church and we have the antidote. So this is where I end with the instructive purpose of the law. You see, laws are required to form society, but laws cannot transform souls. Might be the most important thing I say this morning. All this talk about laws. Laws cannot transform a soul. Did you know that your pastor experienced the punitive purpose of the law? Consequences fell when I broke the law. I served up to five years in a state prison. The punitive process was applied. Guilty as charged. Consequences that I had to fulfill. While in a prison, there was the restrictive purpose of the law. The entire system is designated for rehab, rehabilitation. So you go into programs, you meet with psychologists and psychiatrists, you take all these courses and classes because they want you to understand there's a restrictive purpose to the law. And they're basically saying, when you get out of here, we, we want you to not break the law again because you'll come back. And people get out and then they break the law again and then they go back. So the punitive purpose of the law did nothing. The restrictive purpose of the law did nothing. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, that's because the soul was not transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the gospel gets a hold of a life, that entire life from the inside out completely changes. That old nature, that sinful nature that wants to do whatever it wants to do is placed in check. In fact, the Bible says it is completely paralyzed. The cross paralyzes your sinful nature and the spirit indwells the believer. And then the spirit is what governs the believer's life. I do not, look at me, I do not need external laws of governance when I have within me an internal governor. And he leads me into fulfilling the 10 commandments, which Jesus said, I'll summarize by two, love God, love your neighbor. And then Paul would say, I'll even capture it in one word. Love is the fulfillment of the law. When you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and then he gives himself to you and helps you properly love the world around you. Remember, not a mushy, gushy love, but it's a love that understands the law. See, the instructive purpose of the law is to guard us and guide us. And this is my final thoughts. It's to guard us and guide us. And I will again use a landmark in Ocean City, the pedestrian signs. All right, let me help you. Visually, pedestrian sign, it's in a crosswalk. It literally says, state law. Stop, stop sign. 
silhouette of a pedestrian within crosswalk. You ever seen those? State law, stop for pedestrians within crosswalk. So we see that and we, of course, we see the sign and we can care less if there's a two-ton vehicle coming 25 miles per hour at me. I'm just going to step out into that crosswalk because I have the right of way. That's the letter of the law. No, but that lacks the spirit of the law. And I say that to Christians. Yeah, the letter of the law says you have the right of way. And when that car almost hits you, you flip, you flip something. <laughs> you either go flipping. But, but like, oh my goodness, I've watched people do that. And I just go, oh my gosh. I've, I've had cars. I've come to the crosswalk, right? I have my kids. I come to the crosswalk and like a car sees me and they're like telling me to go. And I'm like, no, no, I'm, I have all my cognitive abilities. I am more than capable to decide when I should cross the walk. You go. And when you go, I, ready for this? I will take advantage of the letter of the law, but I won't neglect or forego the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law always involves grace or charisma. So yeah, I have the right of the way. Thank you to the neighbor, the world around me, but I'm not gonna force it. I'm gonna have grace. And this is what's lacking in the church, an application of the letter of the law while understanding the spirit of the law. See, keeping God's law does not make one a legalist. It actually makes one a loyalist. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. This is to the Christian. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, Jesus, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Did you get that? That's 1 John chapter 2. And finally, Paul says to Timothy, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. What is he saying? He said, after I took you through the proper purpose of the law, after I showed you the law of Moses is still applicable today, it's punitive, it's restrictive, and it's instructive. All of this is according to the glory of the gospel. And the glory of the gospel is this in Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the gospel. Sinners saved by grace, governed by the Holy Spirit, led to the word of God, having an appetite to be instructed by the word of God, knowing that the gavel of the cross incriminates, but it always rolls over as a grace that exonerates. And each of us, the gavel incriminates, you are guilty. But each of us have the opportunity, the same opportunity, the playing field is leveled. You can receive this gift of grace and be exonerated. And the exoneration of the gospel sets men and women free from captivity. This is the message that the world so desperately needs. This is the law of God in a lawless world. Dear church, 
This is your charge. Let's pray.